Pop Culture Affidavit Episode 42, Closing the Door on 1994. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. And this is the last episode for 2014 and the last episode of my year-long look at 1994, the most important year of the 90s, and it is a jam-packed episode. I've got a grab bag. I've got some closing arguments about the year. I've got some emails, and that's what I'm going to start with. My first email comes from Gene Hendricks, he of the Hammer Podcast and Anime Freaks, among other things. The subject of his email is the, quote, real world, and he writes, Tom, first off, thanks for playing the promo for the Hammer Podcast on this episode. I appreciate it. No problem, Gene. It's it's a fun podcast to listen to. I recommend you guys all go over to Two True Freaks and listen to it if you haven't. Anyway... Back to his email. Now, as far as for the show goes, yet again, you've covered something that I've never seen or ever cared to see. I think it's really because I don't like shows about nothing, quote, with an asterisk, and we'll get to the asterisk later, which is what this falls under. I've seen a few episodes of Seinfeld and Friends and didn't like those. This is more of the same, hey, let's watch people doing nothing much. No thanks. It's the same reason I don't just go driving with no destination or wander into a store without something to buy in there. I'd rather spend my time, especially my TV time, doing something. Yes, I watch a lot of scripted television, but at least that was put together for entertainment purposes and not turning cameras on a bunch of people and hoping something happens. All that being said, you presented the show in an interesting way and gave some good facts about it. No, it didn't make me want to seek it or any of its knockoffs, but I did enjoy the episode. Gene. The asterisk I mentioned earlier is the one exception to the rule is the Jack Benny show, either radio or television, frequently about Jack and company going about their day. It's based on honed comedic themes, and I thoroughly enjoy it. Thanks, Gene. I had a a really fun time putting that real-world episode together and was like, well, I hate to use the phrase opening a time capsule, but it kind of felt like that, or at least like looking at a snapshot of the year, and while you didn't go out and watch the show, I'm at least glad you liked the episode, which is something I take as an honest compliment, by the way, especially since this show is one of the odder shows in the two True Freaks family. I definitely have the same interest that many of our cohorts do. After all, I've been listening to a number of the two True Freaks shows for at least a few years now, but I don't know how many of them are willing to drop everything and cover The Breakfast Club or The Real World. It's my hope that this being my thing brings something a little more to the two True Freaks family. Uh, and I really do appreciate your email. The next one is from Luke Giaconetti, who emailed in with the subject, we're not going to protest, we're not going to protest. Gutter is a tool. Gutter is a tool. Obviously, this is about the PCU episode. And he says, Tom, play Metallica and they will come. PCU is one of those movies which truly found its audience on video. I remember it being advertised during its theatrical run, but this is not a film which one views in the theater. It benefits from a loud and raucous viewing with the viewers sitting around drinking beer, eating pizza, wait. Or of a generation of young adults who speak almost entirely in movie quotes, PCU provides a veritable treasure trove of fantastic quotes, which usually end up shouted to the screen. Some of my favorites... Got about a thou there, plus I got Cecilia on the other door. What other door? (laughs) I want it rare, not mooing. You can major in Game Boy if you know how to bullshit. Hippie Olympics. Doesn't matter who wins, because they're all losers. We're getting housed here, guys. I say we bring in blotter. Uh, Sanskrit. Sanskrit? You're majoring in a 5,000-year-old dead language. Yeah. Oh, okay. Ooh, Latin. Best I can do. Next. Phys ed. 
They said, okay, you're out of my room. Seriously, get out. My brother saw the movie before I did, on video, of course, at a party, and he was an early adopter. I followed soon afterwards once I saw it on Comedy Central. This is when we were both in high school, so college enlarged on the horizon for both of us. It spoke to us about the insanity of PC, and as high schoolers in New York, we both were intimately familiar with PC. So the tearing down of the PC mindset and agenda was on target for us, and we identified, as countless others did, with the rebellious outsiders of the pit. Ironically, despite the denizens of the pit's penchant for drinking and drug use, my brother ended up turning to straight edge in college. While I do drink on occasion, I have never, in fact, inhaled other than the occasional cigar while drinking brandy, Natch. PCU prepared me for college in ways no other entity ever did. This includes finding the person on my hall who had a car and making friends with them almost immediately. It worked out because she ended up updating my roommate. But more importantly was the concept of it used to be us versus them, now it's us versus us. You know, I'm looking at that statement of how you found the person in the hall who had a car and made friends with them, and that happened to me as well, almost exactly. That girl ended up dating my roommate too. Huh. Anyway, back to your email. For a stupid little comedy, it had a lot to say about the nature of conflict between groups, which really should have been allied. I've often said that I would rather focus on the adjectives which we share rather than the ones which are different. Case in point, a lot of my dear friends are hardcore lefties, or as comic book scribe slash real-world alumni Judd Winnick once referred to himself, quote, bedwetting liberals. So our politics is a huge gulf, but ultimately isn't it more important that we all love comics or gaming or monsters or heavy metal or whatever? Isn't that the message of PCU? To come together and celebrate the common ground we all share and not worry so much about the differences? Thanks for giving this classic of the 1990s a little spotlight. In closing, Garcia Thompson's making sandwiches without bread. That bitch is giving me gout. Thanks, Luke. You know... I never realized how much PCU prepared me for college as well. In fact, I remember going to orientation at my high, at my school, and the guy I was rooming with quoted the movie, and I immediately quoted another line, and it actually broke the ice. We never became friends or anything, although I did wind up rooming with his stepbrother during my sophomore year, which is a small world coincidence, and that stuff happens at a college like Loyola back in the 90s, but... Really, you're right on about the message. Um, I love politics as much as the next person, uh, but man, I would. There are times where I just want to talk about comics, movies, television, music, baseball, and I know that sounds completely ignorant, but it seriously can make for a much better conversation, especially when the political conversation is just going to wind up in an argument, especially over the internet. By the way, one of the scenes I forgot to mention <laughs> was the flashback to the time when Rand and Draws room together, and Draws who in that scene looks like Dan Cortez for some reason, gets in his face and is like, go to sleep, why won't you let me sleep? Now I want to put on that movie again. Anyway, thanks for the emails, guys. And if you'd like to comment or get in touch with me, you can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or go to the Facebook page and leave a comment. And I'd like to thank Paul Spataro for the very nice things he said to me about the episode that Amanda and I did about Must See TV. Uh, she's going to be on the show again. It won't be a, quote, listen to us, watch something episode. But I, I do know that we're talking about covering some more 90s stuff. So what I'm going to do now, though, is take a short break. And when I get back, I'll have another 1994 grab bag. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Short Box Showcase but then again may have, about a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. And this is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultraman of how they spoke at length. Continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase 
is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search on iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. So that was Hammer with Pumps and a Bump off of his album The Funky Headhunter, which was obviously the most important album of the year. I mean, Hammer going hardcore was just exactly what we were all waiting for to happen. And who the fuck am I kidding? Here's the first item on the grab bag. That's Buddy Holly, the huge hit single off Weezer's self-titled debut album, which is otherwise known as the Blue Album. Funny enough, this is one of two albums that came out in 1994 and are in this episode that actually seem to fit better into 1995. And that's one of the reasons I included it, because at the very beginning of the year, I talked about how 1994 is an important year because it's the beginning of the transition from the early 90s to the late 90s, a transition that would be complete probably around late 96, early 97. Weezer was pop rock that came around at just the right time, to be honest, when heavy plotting, alternative, and grunge were on their last legs, especially after the release of Dookie and the suicide of uh, Kurt Cobain. Weezer was quirky and dorky in a way, and, and yet rocked as well, which you don't get with more contemporary quirky dorky hipster bands or maybe I'm just getting closer to the point where I'll be yelling at the kids to get off my lawn but really you've got this album and the video for Buddy Holly which is one of the best remembered videos of the year if not the decade which was directed by Spike Jones. in fact between this and the video for Sabotage by the Beastie Boys 1994 was Spike Jones's coming out year and he'd go on to a prolific career in both videos and movies Second is a film that I actually do love to watch around this time of year, which is The Ref, starring Dennis Leary. This is a Christmas movie that was released in March and completely bombed, even though out of all the attempts to make Dennis Leary happen at the very beginning of the 1990s, this was the best one. I mean, okay, No Cure for Cancer was hugely successful, and he'd eventually go on to rescue me, but for the most part, attempts to put him in movies one way or another really never worked, or they're forgettable. Uh, but the ref basically casts Leary as his stand-up persona, except that he plays a thief who winds up taking a family hostage right around Christmas, even though he doesn't necessarily want to. He's basically forced into the situation, and um, he winds up having his hands full because everyone in the family absolutely hates one another and is ruled by this horrible matriarch. And, well, the funny thing is, is that Leary, who's supposed to be like, this is his centerpiece, this is the comedic role for him, and he can rant and do his thing, Leary basically has the movie stolen from him because of the performances of the family he's taking hostage were who are played by uh, Kevin Spacey, Judy Davis, and Christine Baranski. Here's Spacey and Davis arguing toward the beginning of the movie. Have you forgiven Caroline for her affair? Look, it was a long time ago. It's over. I'm fine about it. I just don't want to talk about it. Well, then let me ask you something. What do you want from the marriage now? I want to stop talking about it. Look, the truth is I want nothing. I have everything I need. I'm actually a very content person. Oh, what a liar. You're so unhappy you can hardly breathe. And I feel it in every gesture and every silence. And I'm miserable. How can we both be in the marriage and I'm miserable and you're content? Luck? Caroline, what do you want for the marriage? Oh, this should be good. Oh, what does that mean? Because you don't know what you want. You blame everybody else for it. She's impossible to satisfy. She lives in her fantasies. I mean, let's really try to understand Caroline's miserable life. She lives in a beautiful home. Which his mother owns. I have a successful business. Which his mother owns. We're in servitude to his mother for a loan she's charging us 18% interest on. We personally own nothing. We took out a loan. We have to no, pay no, it No, 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 no. You took out a loan. I mean, it was your decision, not mine. You took out a loan from Satan, Mom. She blames my mother for everything that's gone wrong in her life. In the meantime, she never finishes anything she starts. Photography courses. Existential philosophy. 
philosophy courses, Scandinavian cooking classes. At least I go after my dreams. To be what? Somebody who takes photographs of Lutfish to prove the nothingness of being? No wonder our son's so confused. Oh, see? He blames me for Jesse, is that right? I'm not here to judge or to take sides. Oh, what the hell good are you? You're the one who suffocated him with limitations. Our son's a very sensitive, creative Juvenile boy. Juvenile delinquent. Boy, he has the kind of imagination... That the he... mafia gives scholarships for. Oh, In the God. ninth grade, we told him he could get a part-time job. You ready for what he did? He started an escort service for the football team, and he gave out my mother's phone number. And I still say getting laid by an 18-year-old linebacker is just what she needs. And here's my favorite exchange from the entire film difference does any of this make now you're getting a divorce mother what is it possible for you to shut the fuck up for 10 seconds lloyd don't talk to me like that in my own house you know what mom you know what i'm gonna get you next christmas a big wooden cross so every time you feel unappreciated for all your sacrifices, you can climb on up and nail yourself to it. Gary, get my bags. I'm leaving. Oh, go get him yourself. He's not your errand boy. Has everyone gone nuts? Who the hell do you think you are? Slipper socks. Medium. The Ref is not a landmark movie by any means and probably can be lumped in with a hundred random comedies from the 90s but I wanted to at least give it a mention this year because it's a funny movie it is around the holidays even though this is after Christmas when this is being released and I think you should check it out next up is the Oscar race from 1994 which was one again once again one of those 90s Oscar races that was incredibly strong and which is impressive considering how the previous year's race was also one of the most memorable the five nominees for Best Picture in 1994 were The Shawshank Redemption, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Pulp Fiction, Quiz Show, and Forrest Gump. I'd say that out of five, Quiz Show is probably the one film that is the most easily forgotten and probably the least influential of the five. It's not a bad movie by any means. In fact, I quite enjoyed it. It's just that the other four have had so much staying power. Four Weddings and a Funeral, for instance, launched the career of Hugh Grant in the United States. Shawshank, even though it didn't do well in theaters, has had a significant life on video and television, and there were points where that movie was on all the time. I've talked about Pulp Fiction already, and Forrest Gump winning Best Picture? Look, I've covered Forrest Gump on the blog, and I realize that people love this movie, but I still can't understand how this beat out Pulp Fiction and the Shawshank Redemption for Best Picture. I mean, it's just so schmaltzy. Then again, if you look at the late 90s, Forrest Gump is almost the perfect film to usher in the transition that 1994 offers between the two parts of the decade, even though I have some serious issues with its winning Best Picture. Next up is Party of Five, the other teen show of 1994, and the other show of 1994 were the theme song that I have to confess that I never really watched this show. I may have watched an episode or two during its run, but I never got into it. Party of Five would go all the way to the early 2000s, and it launched the careers of a number of people who have gone on to bigger roles. Matthew Fox, Scott Wolf, Nev Campbell, Lacey Chabert, and of course Jennifer Love Hewitt, who isn't huge now, but was quite possibly one of the biggest young actresses in Hollywood for the latter half of the decade. The show, if I recall correctly, was about the five children of the Salinger family who were orphaned during the pilot episode and had to fend for themselves. Not in like a sort of Dickensian orphan sort of way. The Matthew Fox's character, I believe, was the oldest person there, so and he was ended up being sort of the provider 
uh, for the group. But anyway, the the show is successful. It had a decent audience, um, and it was the same audience that would go on to be huge fans of, say, Dawson's Creek. Uh, a few years later, eventually the OC, and there are a ton of other shows now that would feature uh, attractive casts with various problems. This is why I put it on this episode. Um, it's not really that memorable. It's on DVD if you'd like to watch it, but it is interesting how Party of Five was one of those shows that showed very, very pretty people with problems if they were not like rich kids from Beverly Hills, as 90210 had been doing. So, um, it also provided it provided a formula that worked and would get duplicated even if they weren't using the orphan bit. Uh, they would have, you know, a photogenic cast with problems that were not outlandish or soap operatic or, or too dramatic, uh, because the people who were watching it wanted to identify with the characters more than they wanted to be the characters, so to speak. Okay. My next thing is another thing from 1994 that you'll hear and you'll go, oh, right, yeah, that was a thing. To love the God and to fear the flame and to burn the crowd that has a name and to write Throwing Copper was the second album by the band Live. It hit number one on the Billboard album charts, and it has sold 8 million copies since it was released in April of 1994. And honestly, Live was one of those bands that was just inexplicably popular in 1994 and 1995. I'm sure there's like one person listening to this episode who disagrees with me on the inexplicably part of that description, but really, this band wrote a song that involves afterbirth. Seriously, Afterbirth. Okay, I can give you selling the drama, and maybe I alone, but Afterbirth. Confession time, by the way. I own this album. I haven't listened to it in probably about 20 years. For the first few years of that 20 years or so since I've listened to it, um, I didn't listen to the album because the girl I was dating at the end of high school and the beginning of college absolutely loved this band, and she's the one who gave me the album. So after we broke up, I just did not want to listen to this band or the album. Then, after I eventually got over the breakup, as you do, I just didn't want to listen to the album because, well, this band sucks. Okay, I'm not one to make judgment calls on the quality of music, considering I actually went willingly went to see Hootie and the Blowfish in concert twice. But, in fact, actually, they were with the girl I just mentioned. But seriously, um, this album is just awful. I mean, Afterbirth. Really? Afterbirth. Let's talk about True Lies. How'd it go at the convention, honey? You were the big hit of the show. It's fantastic. It's, I love the computer business. 
For 15 years, Harry Tasker's been leading a double life. Mr. President, one of our best men is inside. Transmitting now. Right on time. I don't believe I've met you before. Rehnquist. Harry Rehnquist. Listen to the following code word. Helen. H-E-L-E-N. Now, they're about to collide. What's your exit strategy? I'm going to walk right out of the front gate. May I see your invitation, please? Sure. Here's my invitation. Yeah, that worked good. Right out the old front gate. <laughs> you need me back a second? Mr. Tasker's office. Hi, it's Helen. Is he in? Harry's in a sales meeting, Mrs. Tasker. It's not like he's saving the world or anything. I see this is the problem with terrorists. They're really inconsiderate when it comes to people's schedules. Can you press the button for the top floor, please? Hi, Helen. Harry forgot something back at the office. Whenever I can't sleep, I just ask him to tell me about his day. Six seconds and I'm out. Maybe it's just that you're not in touch with your feminist side. Harry! Uh-oh. What are you doing there? You wouldn't believe me if I told you. You know what this is? It's a snow cone maker. Is it a water heater? From James Cameron, director of Aliens and T2. Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's a Soviet MIRF-6 from an SS-22N launch vehicle. Curtis. Have you ever killed anyone? Yeah, but they were all bad. True lies. What can I say? I'm a spy. If you haven't seen True Lies, or it's been a long time since you have, this was a James Cameron-directed film, and it was Arnold Schwarzenegger's comeback after the unmitigated disaster that was Last Action Hero. Now, I'm not going to shit all over Last Action Hero because it's actually a lot better than its reputation, but commercially, that movie did horribly, and it more or less marked the end of the huge Schwarzenegger era in movie theaters. True Lies was the third highest grossing movie of 1994, and at the time, it was the most expensive movie ever made. This film, by the way, is incredibly good and it holds up incredibly well. The basic plot is that Schwarzenegger is an apparently ordinary family man, but in reality is a spy for a super-secret government organization and, well, he's after a group of terrorists. Complicating things is the fact that his wife, who's played brilliantly by Jamie Lee Curtis, is unhappy in their marriage and has been flirting with the guy who's played by Bill Paxton, who claims he is a spy, but really isn't a spy. So Schwarzenegger's character sets up this fake spy game and eventually it actually gets real and soon his entire family is embroiled in this plot involving Middle Eastern terrorists and a stolen nuclear bomb. It's a movie that is a little long, to be honest, but I will say it succeeds so much in areas where movies that were trying to be both action and comedy didn't, even if films like Hudson Hawk and Last Action Hero have kind of become cult classics in the decades since they were released and really aren't as bad as they're made out to be. Jamie Lee Curtis, by the way, would win a Golden Globe for her performance in this movie, and rightfully so. So she's absolutely hilarious. Uh, James Cameron would go on to direct Titanic in 1997. Schwarzenegger's movie, well, unfortunately was Junior, the one where he was pregnant, um, although Eraser, which was the one that he did after Junior, was was worth watching, and, and I recommend that one as well. It was a good one. Next up is an event that has very little to do with entertainment or popular culture, but I wanted to at least mention it because it was an important moment in our recent political history, and that's the 1994 elections. Uh, these were midterm elections, meaning that President Clinton was not up for re-election. He was halfway through his first term, and as happens every two years, much of both the House and the Senate were up for election. In 1994, the Republican Party took control of the House and the Senate for the first time in several decades and won several key gubernatorial races. Newt Gingrich became Speaker of the House, and while this did not translate into any success in the 1996 presidential election, Clinton would be elected for a second term, beating out Bob Dole pretty handily, from what I recall. This led to Clinton's eventual impeachment over the Monica Lewinsky scandal, 
And this definitely contributed to uh, what would eventually be the George W. Bush presidency. These elections ushered in an era of modern conservatism that we're still seeing a lot today. And it's important for its impact and that staying power as well. So like I said, it's worth mentioning. 1994 wasn't especially a huge year in world history or even American history, even though there are significant events. But this is definitely another piece that fits into my original statement about 1994 and how it's a key year in the bridge between the early and late 1990s. And now we're up to something that wasn't just a bridge between the early and late 1990s, but was also one of the most significant cultural events of the past two decades. And that's the launch of Netscape Navigator on December 15th, 1994. I don't think that anyone my age needs an explanation as to why this is important, but to those of us who grew up in a world without the internet, this was huge. Granted, Netscape wasn't the first web browser. Uh, That honor, I believe, goes to Mosaic. Um, Or at least that was the, Mosaic was the earliest widely used web browser. But it's not like the, everybody was on the internet in 1984. First, you had to have a computer in your house. And even back then, that was not always the case. Um, second, if you had a computer in your house, it had to have a modem. Again, not everybody had this. And shit, I didn't get a PC with a modem until my graduation from college. And the only thing remotely close to a computer that I had back in 1994 was some dinosaur from the late 80s that didn't even have a full-color screen. I wrote my papers for senior year of high school using WordPerfect on a screen that was green against the black background. It, it, the, the saving grace was that it took the same size floppy disks so I could bring it to school if I had to. And, and if I had to get on a computer, I could type stuff on the computer there and print it out there. But really, I mean, I mean, maybe I was the exception to the rule. My parents have always been very late in adopting um, any new technology. It's the reason we didn't have a cable until 1996. But seriously, I, I it's not like I wasn't exposed to tech um, or computers or the internet. I had friends who had very, very state-of-the-art computers. I had one friend who was on Prodigy for years. Um, my friend Harris was on AOL um, as early as uh, 93, 94. And um, two of my friends, my friend Rich, I remember we were getting on getting online with him a couple of years earlier than that. Uh, in fact, we were getting on locally on uh, BBSs, which were kind of the internet, but were kind of not the internet. I mean, internet service providers in the very, very early 90s did not exist the way that they do now. You didn't exactly go through cable vision to get your internet. You, you just dialed into a place that, that had something that you could you could access and um, usually it was just a local hub where other people were contributing and if somebody was online with their files they could you know you could download them or something like that Um, we looked up porn yes even back then got plenty of it too Um, in late 94 though (laughs) in early 95 uh, my friend Jeremy, I remember, upgraded his computer. And somehow, at one point, he wound up he wound up with a beta version of Windows ninety five. He was able to get onto the World Wide Web, uh, and that was something I hadn't seen before. Um, I can't exactly remember what we did on the internet, though. Um, I'm, I'm sure we were looking for porn, but but I'd be lying if I didn't say. It was my first step into a larger world. Um, he might have had an online encyclopedia that we were accessing, or maybe it was just Encarta. Or, or and I remember we we're looking up stuff about movies and stuff. And and you know, I went to college in the fall of '95, and there were computer labs at Loyola in the dorms. And my um, my roommate had a computer. He was a computer science major, so he he had a, an access to a Linux account, and we had a slightly faster internet and we would go look up stuff. I mean, the internet movie database got started then. I mean, we'd go look up stuff all the time and uh, it was pretty it was pretty cool um, back then. And Netscape was the vessel. Netscape was the thing that you downloaded to your computer and you opened up in order to look at what was on the internet. Or you went to the computer lab and you clicked the Netscape button. And you used, we used that browser for years until at least Microsoft Internet Explorer came around. And that browser, 
it's not like that was a revolutionary browser. That was Microsoft did with that browser. What Microsoft did back in that time was just put it on everything and it became default because they would preload it onto Windows starting, I want to say starting with the later versions of 95 or at least Windows 98 because I remember by the end of college using Internet Explorer more than Netscape Navigator. And um, Netscape kind of died out as a result because it was never able to keep up with the changes uh, that Internet Explorer provided. And then when Firefox and Google Chrome started coming out in the mid to late 2000s, Internet Explorer kind of well, faded a little bit. I mean, it's still kicking around and, and Microsoft still updates it. It's the one I use at work in the computer lab because of it, because the other two for whatever reason they don't work very well on the shitty computers that we have in the computer lab at work but but yeah that that in a big way i wanted to give credit where credit is due here and and just put a little bit of a spotlight on netscape because i think most of us when thinking about our early days on the internet can see the little n in the corner with the starscape kind of background that showed it was working so um yeah, that's that. And now I have to transition to two jackasses making prank phone calls. Hello? Hey, what's up there, fruitcake? I'm looking for paint work. Who's this? This is Mike. Who? Mike who? Mike the rookie. You got paint work for me or what? No. Well, it says here in the air that uh, you need uh, paint work and you got paint work and all that shit. What do we got there? Oh, they made a mistake in that ad. Oh, yeah? Well, you don't got no work for me. Oh, you don't understand. They, see what it says on the situations wanted? Yeah. yeah they made a mistake. A lot of people been calling me for what I'm looking for work. Hey, I know what it's like. <laughs> you, you, you paint in the union? Nah, I don't go with that union shit, you know what I mean? I paint everything. I'm a paint. I paint my car, paint everything. Oh, you're like me, you know. I'm looking yeah. for work myself, you know. I just did some job on my car. Beautiful. I used a roller there. The paintbrush came out beautiful. Oh, yeah? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. So you got no paint for me, huh? I'm not working myself. I'm looking for work. What about taping? Nothing. Yeah, huh? I'm sorry, you know. Yeah, I hear you, fruitcake. You gotta help me out, though, if you could. I would. Yeah, you couldn't help me, though, huh? No, because I'm not working myself. Oh, I paint my toenails, everything. <laughs> paint the walls. I'm silly. I love it. They call me rubberneck. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what do you say we get together and paint each other up? Yeah, forget about it. Hey, we're good like that, right? Paint the town, night on the town, right, Mike? What do you say, Bill? Give me your number. All right. You ready, Chief? Yeah. Are you in the city? Yeah. Five, five, five. Five, seven, eight, five. What uh, part of the city you live? Uh, down in the village area there. Oh, you're way downtown. Oh, shoot. Way downtown, fruitcake. Look, any help you can give me, I appreciate it. Yes, I will. Okay, Sizzle Chest. What's your name? My name is Mike. Okay? I appreciate it. Okay, something comes along. Hey, God bless us all, huh? God bless you, babe. Okay, thank you. Wish you luck in the future. Say your prayer. Thank you. Okay, see you later, fruitcake. Okay, bye. I'm uh, I'm not going to get too much into this, honestly. Because um, I'm going to cover... I'm, I'm going to write a blog post about the Jerky Boys movie at some point next year. But I was thinking about stuff from the early 1990s, and I realized that this was a thing. 1994 saw the release of the album The Jerky Boys 2. Uh, the first album had come out in 1993, but The Jerky Boys 2 is noteworthy for hitting number 12 on the Billboard album charts and going platinum, which shows you that people will buy anything. <laughs> I mean, Radiohead named an album after one of their bits. So, like, they were, like, huge um, especially in 1994, uh, where they would get that movie that would come out in early 95 and would be kind of like a really, really shitty movie. But but um, it's just two guys making prank phone calls in various voices. It's like every bad morning zoo DJ's dream to have something like this happen to them, I would assume. Um, and... You know, th this just happened to these two guys, and they got nominated for a Grammy for Best Comedy Album. Um, they lost to, like, a stance to the la very last Sam Kinison album. But, and, you know, and, and I'd like to sound all snobbish and say, oh, this, this humor was not my sort of thing. But come on, I was 17 years old. My friends and I played the crap out of the CD back when we were seniors and then into our 
freshman year of college. I mean, I'm pretty sure it led to us making a few prank phone calls as well. So it bears recognition. And that's all I'm going to say. And I'm going to move on to the last item in the grab bag. think you can mention the mid-1990s without mentioning the Dave Matthews Band. Released on September 27, 1994 and hitting number 11 on the Billboard charts with singles such as What Would You Say, Ants Marching, Jimmy Thing, and Satellite getting plenty of radio airplay, especially on modern rock radio, you have Under the Table and Dreaming. Plus, you know... Moving from 94 to 95 into 96 when they were released Crash and I would go to college, DMB became this dorm room staple, especially if you wanted to get laid. And I'm probably, that's probably worth its own blog post in itself. But anyway, this album ushered in um, one of those 1990s trends of the jam band, as they were called. You love the most people give music in the media. Like, you know, we have to call it something, so we call it jam band. It's it's a stupid label. I'm just going with what was kind of the popular nomenclature for these things. So don't shoot me if I'm mislabeling something. But anyway, um, DMB got top 40 radio airplay. Um, It was popular among the kids, such as myself. And yeah. If you're looking at that type of music from the mid-1990s, the group you actually would turn to is not DMB, but Fish. And Hoist came out a few months earlier. And, well, Fish has a following. Trust me, I know guys from college who like were really into Fish. And I was into Fish for maybe three months, sort of. I would just borrow my friend's CDs and listen to them. And I think I made a mixtape at one point of the only Fish songs that I liked. But even I just got tired of that crap. Plus, I don't do drugs. But Fish never had the popularity of the Dave Matthews Band. And I'm sure that half of the TTF audience is listening to this and groaning audibly. But I kind of have to cover them. I mean, like I said, by the time I really started listening to this band, it was the mid-90s, and it was college, and everyone was doing it, and it got you laid. I mean... Trust me on that. Um, plus, I'm in Charlottesville. Uh, Dave Matthews Central is like 10 miles down the road from where, where I was. My, my my wife saw him in in concert when he was playing fraternity houses before he was. they were huge. We've run into him at the local gelato place uh, before. I mean, it's just... You, you can't escape Charlottesville without without having some sort of encounter in some way or another with something involving Dave Matthews or the Dave Matthews Band anyway. But for the sake of this podcast, um, there is some really good stuff on this album. Uh, Ants Marching, for instance, uh, that's the song that was opening the segment. That was a well, that's a well-crafted pop song. Uh, even if you don't like it, it is a, it is very, very well done. Um, some of the other stuff in this album has not held up as well, but... You know, what other album is a better choice to mark the transition from the seriousness and earnestness of early 1990s rock to the disposable pop sounds of late 90s rock? All right, probably Dookie, um, Blues Travelers 4, The Goo Goo Dolls, A Boy Named Goo, which would come out in 95. But if you're going to kind of find like a top five or a top ten albums that mark that transition, Under the Table and Dreaming is definitely on there. Um, And 
you have to admit that this album it it's still listenable um and that's something to say especially because i don't think many people are popping in their old fastball or eagle eye cherry albums at the moment i don't know maybe some people are i mean they do still play that damn eagle eye cherry song on the radio every once in a while because people really have this burning desire to listen to stay tonight just as like they all seem to want to hear that santana rob thomas song smooth still i mean really anyway i'm gonna take a break and when i get back i'm gonna wrap up 1994 in 1977 the world changed the film industry was transformed the popular culture rocked and young minds forever altered star wars arrived and nothing would ever be the same again though everyone wasn't affected in the same way everyone was affected this is my star wars story my star wars story monthly at mystarwarsstory.com You know, there's actually a reason I'm playing Real McCoy, um, and no, it's not because I've lost it, uh, because I would have had to have it in order to lo- lose it. Um, no, this was the number three song in the country on December 31st, 1994. Uh, number two was Here Comes the Hot Stepper, which is what I used, in, I think I used that, that in the first uh, Grab Bag episode this year, actually. Number one in the country was On Bended Knee by Boys to Men, which I didn't want to come back in with because it's too slow. And because it's that's not a song I particularly like, to be honest. Um, but anyway, moving on. Um, I've done the grab bag. And looking at my podcast episodes for this year, I've done my best to cover one year of the 90s, 20 years after the fact. Um this series of episodes was by and blog posts was by no means a complete history of 1994. Um, I missed quite a bit, especially when it came to books and video games. Um, I wasn't attuned to either in 1994, to be honest. I mean, it's not like I wasn't reading or playing video games. I just wasn't doing any of that. Um, my finger on the pulse, so to speak, I and mean, nothing was. Um, current and that's probably the biggest reason I didn't cover them other than I being that I simply I started to run out of time and run out of steam in the second half of the year because work just became work um but with books for instance I don't know maybe I would have talked about Prozac Nation which came out this year and that was a pretty big one um looking at the book list on Wikipedia there's some books that look noteworthy but that would have been a monster episode to put together because of the amount of work involved uh, because I would have had to read the books. And so what I did was just decided to skip that. Um, video games, on the other hand, that was one that, well, you know, I have to tell you guys I'm not a video game person. I mean, I play them on occasion. Uh, as far as being a hardcore gamer or gamer of any way, I, it's not my thing. Uh, I haven't owned a video game system since the Nintendo Entertainment System. Uh, my wife has a Super Nintendo and an N64, but, you know, that's about it. Um, well, okay, we bought our son a Wii U for Christmas, so we might be getting back into some stuff. But, you know, it's just not something that's been 
ever present in my life. Um, even though I got my first video game system when I was a kid, um, and I and I you know I played my fair share of Madden, I played my fair share of NHL on Genesis on on PlayStation or whatever system happened to be at my friends' houses or in my dorm room or whatever back in God we played Mortal Kombat endlessly in my dorm room back in like ninety eight ninety nine, but but really. Beyond that, I was never, <laughs> I was never particularly like locked into video games where it became my obsession. Part of it is because I suck at video games. It took me fifteen years, roughly, to beat Super Mario Brothers. That's the game that came with the Nintendo. That's the game you played endlessly when you got your Nintendo because you had like three, two, three other games. You had that. You had Duck Hunt. And you had like Kung Fu, and that's it. Um, and I couldn't beat it when I was a kid. So, I mean, again, it's just not my thing. So I didn't want to look like a complete poser by saying, oh, here's my episode on video games because, you know, it just, I don't think it would have worked. Um, and that's why I punked out on it. But to give it a little bit of coverage at the end of the episode here, it looks like 94 was a decent year for video games. Uh, there were several releases that became popular, among them Super Metroid, TIE Fighter, Doom 2, Donkey Kong Country, Tekken, and uh, Wing Commander 3. Two notable releases, uh, by the way, two other notable releases, are Wario's Woods, and that was the final game ever released for the original Nintendo Entertainment System. And on December 3rd, 1994, Sony released the original PlayStation in Japan. So I guess that is another item to prove my original thesis. Uh, PlayStation would be huge uh, within the next couple of years. And we still are we up to the PS4 now? I mean that's that's what uh, that's what's become the, the the big thing, one of the big things. And you have a year in 1994 that's a landmark year in a way that's more subtle, though. And I want to, and I want to get to kind of my closing, closing argument here, my closing discussion here of, of the year. I look at 1994, and I look at the rest of the decade, and I look at other landmark years of decades: uh, 1963, 1969, 1974, 1989, 2001. And I see that in each of those years, there's like one huge event that we can look at and say like that's the event for the year that's the event that defines the year that's the event that everybody remembers from the year um and out of those five years three of those events were tragic or negative and two and the other two were positive so it could be positive or negative it doesn't have to be a disaster it doesn't have to be anything horrific and i suppose you could argue that there might be a moment there in 1994 Kurt Cobain's suicide, for instance. But really, if you look at the year as a whole, there's a lot more going on during the year that's significant that prevents that one event from being the most important event of 1994. Not to say that it's not important, but it is not the Kennedy assassination, for instance. So much came out, or so much happened in 1994 that had lasting effects or staying power. And if you look at quite a number of the things that were popular in the late 90s, you can see their genesis in the early part of the decade, specifically in this year, where either they came about or they started to gain a little bit of steam. Personally, it was a transition year for myself. I'll probably go into deeper memories of my senior year of high school on the blog over the course of the next year. Um, And I think that's become evident in some of the posts I've shared where I have gotten more personal, even though even if they do somehow involve popular culture. One of my personal favorite blog posts of all time is actually a, a repost that I did this year. It was a story of my trip to Europe. I shared it back in July. Uh, and it's been interesting to share my memories of pop culture that actually involve girls in some way. Um, and that's what I was talking about again, about getting personal. I think it was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with honors and far behind uh, were three where you know, I, I finally found myself having a bit of a social life toward the end of this year. And so just kind of that weird move from, okay, I go to movies with my friends and we screw around, which I still did, to, okay, there's this girl. <laughs> and, and it sounds ridiculous. I mean, like, 
who really cares? But at the same time, this is me, the the nerdy kid in, in school, in in a much larger, weirder thing, world, what have you. And it makes sense, at least to me. Uh, so you'll, you'll hear a lot of that more in 95 uh, when I talk a little bit here and there about 95 next year. And, and, and that does beg the question, am I going to just suddenly cover 1995 all next year? Because, you know, it was an important year of my life. Not really. <laughs> well, it was an important year of life, but I'm not really going to cover it. I mean, I'll probably look at a few things, but it's not like a huge year in popular culture. There are things that are significant about 95, but it's it's not some of the other years by any stretch of the imagination. Plus, I don't have the energy to do an entire year on one topic again, even though I broke a couple of times to do some other stuff. There are shows that I've been wanting to do that I set aside over the course of this year uh, because I just didn't have the time to get around to them. And, and I was like, oh, well, I, I do want to cover that, but I've got to cover this first or something. I have some stuff planned for next year. Uh, I'm going back to a more regular format where things are kind of more random and they don't have an overarching theme. But watch this. This is a segue. I'm going to talk about that next episode, um, what what we're going to do next year and, and, and you know how Christmas went and everything like that uh, because I'm recording this before Christmas but releasing it right before the new year. Before I go, however, I recommend uh, if you go back through the through the archives for, for this year, I recommend checking out a number of the movies and television shows I talked about, listening to some of the songs or the albums I went over, uh, really, or, or going back and looking up anything you can about it if you're interested. Uh, it's it's a very, very interesting year. As is this decade, this decade is becoming more and more interesting the more and more I look back on it, try to just remembering like how much actually happened as opposed to how bored I seemed half the time. But then again, sometimes you don't realize the importance of something until years after the fact. Before I go, though, I, I do want to thank some people. Uh, Michael Bailey, Trentus Magnus, uh, Sarah Bunting, Shell, Andrea, Corey, Mark, uh, my wife Amanda, anybody else who was either on the show, wrote into the show, contributed to an episode, um... Some of the guys, Jeff, Chris, who who sent me emails and things for, for the Rangers episode. Thank you guys for contributing this year. I've had a blast putting these episodes together um, and researching this and watching this stuff and listening to it. And it's been a lot of fun. And also thank you to anybody, Luke and Chris and, and, and Gene and, and anybody else who's been uh, emailing in over the course of the year. I always appreciate getting your emails and comments and stuff. So come back in a few weeks for the start of another year. I hope you all have a happy and safe new year. And until then, take care and thanks for listening. You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, and other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, show notes, and essays on other topics random in the world of popular culture can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Pop Culture Affidavit also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is the division of the Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to 2TrueFreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness.